Lord, as we get into your word this morning, I pray that your spirit would make real the things you want us to hear and take to heart. Lord, just for each one, no more and no less. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in John 4 this morning. If you want to, feel free to turn there. Remember, we met a woman at a well last week, and we talked about Jesus' time there as a divine appointment and being open to God having you interact with people you hadn't planned on or hadn't prepared for. This morning, we're actually going to be covering the same ground. That is, we're going to read verses 10 through 26 again. Uh, Entirely different take or perspective on what we're looking at. I want to say that we're looking at the mechanics of the conversation. That sounds a little dull or boring, so maybe that's not the best way to frame this. But at the dynamics specifically related to the way Jesus interacts with this woman and she interacts with him. So we'll start at verse 7. Remember, Jesus and the guys have come up from Judea in the south. They're going up to Galilee, so they're going through Samaria, the shortest route. He stopped at a well to get a drink. It says, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father's Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Uh, On emphasizing Jesus' interaction this morning, I want to talk about it evangelistically. That is, this is clearly an evangelistic appeal to this woman at the well. And, And in starting that, the first thing I want to point out is this is just a normal conversation with a stranger. He hasn't worked up, there's no uh, method, so to speak. He hasn't come up with a grand plan and now he's implementing it. This is just an everyday conversation, other than she's a Samaritan and he's a Jew, and we've talked about those issues last week. This is just a mundane conversation. Jesus has a real need, he's thirsty. He's at a well and there's no bucket with a rope to let down. The woman's bringing her own. He's thirsty, so he initiates a conversation in which he says, Hey, I'd like a drink. It's just a mundane conversation. It's just an everyday conversation. There's nothing special. She's not a target as far as Jesus' day plans went. But she is, I have no doubt, as far as God the Father's went. And I suspect already Jesus knows that there's more afoot than a drink of water already, that this is a divine appointment by God. You know, for you and I, we have maybe hundreds of conversations a week no different than this one. That is, where we interact with someone, maybe briefly, this could be at work, it could be at a store, it could be at school, I mean, you name it, in which there's nothing apparently special about the interaction. We interact with someone because we need something or they need something. But potentially, in God's economy, any one of those conversations could be one of his divine appointments when he wants us to talk to someone else about him. You never know. We never know. It's good to be thinking as we meet people, Lord, do you have anything for me to share with this person today? 
We talked about that again last week. But what I want to point out is he didn't work this up. He didn't sit down that morning, as far as we know, and say, Lord, how can I drum up some people to talk to about you? It's just a normal request for water, but it begins this conversation. And when we're talking to others, we need to have a mindset. This may be one of God's appointments for us. On his calendar, he may have set this out that he wants us talking to this person. So it just starts as a mundane, everyday, normal conversation. The second thing, though, is how quickly and how directly and unapologetically Jesus goes from the request for a drink of water to the whole issue of spiritual life. I mean, it's wham, bam, and he's there. Can I have a drink of water? She responds, and all of a sudden they're talking about spiritual life and the water of life. And uh, I think, you know, often for us, this is kind of the tricky point. Maybe we're talking to someone, and maybe we're open to God using us to say something to them, but we're just not sure how to go about it. We stumble over our own feet, so to speak, as we try and drum up a conversation. Jesus' method here, he goes directly. They don't know each other's names. Her name's never given. There's lots that they don't do related to a conversation with each other. I mean, maybe he would be considered rude. He didn't even tell her his name. He just immediately enters into this conversation about spiritual reality and the water of life. And I like this. Uh, You know, if our goal in life is to share the gospel with others, and it is an important goal for any Christian, this should be the norm. We should be unapologetic about this. We should be direct about it. I'm not saying this will occur in every conversation. It didn't with Jesus, and it won't be with us. But when it does, when that is the appropriate thing, he goes straight in, straight in. I'll relate to you a story. It's embarrassing. Frankly, it's still painful for me today. Um, Years ago, I was still a new Christian, though that's no excuse. Um, I had an opportunity, you know, um, God use me. God use me. Don't we pray that at times? God use me. I'm in an elevator, and the door opens. And there's this UPS man grinning from ear to ear. And his smile's as broad as the opening on the elevator doors. And he stands there enthusiastically in his brown suit and he says, what do you know? (laughs) And the first words that went through my mind were, Jesus is Lord. And frankly, that sounds kind of corny to me, even just saying it today. But those are the words that went in my mind just because here's a strange guy and here am I and... Anyway, I'm uncomfortable in my own skin at times. And so, Jesus is Lord. Those words are in my mind. They're not only in my mind, literally, they're like water in my mouth. I know that, you know what it's like when you try and talk with water in your mouth? It spills out. So, if I could just open my mouth, the words would just spill out like water. Jesus is Lord. Simple. Direct question, direct response. This is doable, right, Sean? Should have been. But you know how your mind works and how thoughts flash through, you know, almost timelessly. Like, you could have... Many thoughts flow through your mind in milliseconds or nanoseconds or whatever. And you know what immediately followed that thought? I'll bet some of you can guess. What will he think of me if I say that? What will he think of me if I say that? That was what followed next. And so I swallowed those watery words like this. And I said, uh, oh, not much. He got in the elevator with me. We went down one floor. He got off. And, you know, I felt like the lowest form of life on earth. I felt like a slug or a worm because I knew God had just given me an invitation and an opportunity to just directly say something to a guy I hadn't seen before, 
that would have been cool and great, and that was God's appointment. I didn't know it was coming. I was unprepared, no excuse. Um, and it came and it went, and I just felt terrible. And you know what I did? Because I was going to make up for it. I was going to find another person to have that next divine conversation with. So later that day, I cornered a maintenance man who I knew had time on his hand. And see, I was crafty and shrewd, and I engineered my conversation to get around the spiritual things, and then clearly sharing the gospel with him. And I knew I was in trouble when he said, well, you see, in my church we have big sins and we have little sins. And I knew what church he was raised in because I was raised in that church too. And I thought, oh, no, I'm in trouble now. Everything I said, right over the top. He says, well, you, you see, in our church, this is the way it is. And I thought, I had wasted 40 minutes of my time in a conversation God had nothing to do with. See, the first one was God's conversation. All I had to do was open my mouth, answer a direct question with a direct statement. This should be doable. But instead, I capitulated to fear. I swallowed hard. And then I went and wasted my time talking to a funny guy and in and, and a conversation that went nowhere. You know, if I'd done it God's way, it would have been great. It would have been just like the one at the well here. It would have been God's appointment, God's time and going straight to the heart of the issue. So with Jesus at the well, here he enters into this conversation with a woman, simple request, simple response, direct statement, going right into this issue of spiritual things. And I think for myself and for all of us, just God help us to be ready when we're interacting with that person. We hadn't planned on seeing or a, a helper at a store or again, this a telephone conversation, who knows? Any of these could be God's appointments for us to speak up for him. And we need to be ready. The message Jesus gives her, of course, is the water of life. They're talking about a, he's a thirsty guy needing a drink. You remember back in chapter 3, the Nick at night conversation, when Nicodemus is wanting to understand this issue of being born again. Nick, you must be born again. And Jesus says, don't worry about it too hard, Nick, because... People are born again when the spirit, like a wind, blows through. You don't know where the wind comes from. You don't know where it's going to, but you see it when it blows through. You see the limbs on the trees bow. You know the wind has come through. Jesus said spiritual birth is like that, that the wind, the Holy Spirit, blows through like a wind and brings about new birth. Here in chapter 4, he compares the Holy Spirit's work to water. And not just any water, but to the water of life, zoe life, zoe water, zoe life-giving water or a spring of water. And in John 3, it was that the Spirit would accomplish this work. The wind would blow through and do something. Here in John 4, he says the Spirit is like this well of water that you'll get and he'll always be with you. And his life in you will be a well springing up, flowing up from within, John 3, the wind that blows through and accomplishes something. John 4, this water, this life-giving, overflowing well that will be with you forever to the end of the age. There's lots to talk about with the Holy Spirit and this issue, but I'm going to hold most of that off for John 7, John 7, 38 and 39, when Jesus talks more pointedly about this. But let me quote two verses briefly. Psalm 36, 9 David says, with you, God, is the fountain of life. With you is the fountain of life. Or in Jeremiah 2.13, God says, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
Old and New Testament, God compares himself to life-giving water. And the context isn't like a pond, you know, a stagnant body of water. It's not just water. It's flowing water. It's water with a source under pressure, as it were, flowing, going someplace. That's what he compares himself to. So Jesus asks for water. She responds. He immediately goes into spiritual issues and invites her to take a drink of water that will last her forever. Straight to the gospel. When you and I share Christ with others, just like Jesus did here, we're inviting them to something that's refreshing, it's life-giving. There's nothing embarrassing about this, in other words. We shouldn't feel squirrely when we, like Jesus, invite someone to take a drink of water, so to speak, that lasts forever, that's life-giving, that's affirming. That's Jesus' side of the conversation. He initiates the conversation. He goes straight to spiritual things. That's his end. Now, let's look at the other side of the conversation. I was talking about the mechanics here. This is the woman's side of the conversation at verse 15. Jesus is speaking. What's she doing? The woman said to her, Sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. The well's probably outside the city some distance. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. Where'd that come from? What did that have to do with the water? Go get your husband. What's going on here? Why does Jesus bring up a husband? He already knows that uh, he knows her background here. And remember, though Jesus is God, the Son on earth, he had given up components of his divine prerogatives, omniscience being one, So I have no doubt that the Holy Spirit, the one he's talking about as the water of life, has, as it were, whispered in his ear this woman's history, or enough of it to know what the issues are. And I think what's happening is uh, Jesus wants to get to this woman's heart. And she's hearing his words, but they're not sinking in. They're not penetrating. She's carrying on a nice conversation, going nowhere. And Jesus isn't content or satisfied with that. He wants to get down to brass tacks, where she really lives. So he brings up this issue that for her would be this sensitive spot, her past, her checkered past. You know, this was hard to do in, in, uh, for a Jew or a Samaritan to have five divorces and be living with another guy. This was difficult to do. She was no doubt sensitive about her past. So Jesus brings up this sensitive spot to get her attention so that she can hear the things she really needs to hear from him that day because she is probably both at two levels, unintentionally and very intentionally, she's not going where Jesus is trying to lead her in this conversation. So he puts his thumb on this issue in her life to get her attention, to prick her as it would be to get her attention. So he says, go bring your husband. Um, I am often in conversations I say this loosely, with some members of my household in which they're talking and I'm reading. Is there a problem with this? They're talking and I'm reading. I can do both at the same time, right? I do all the time. So one of my members is talking and I'm a hind at the appropriate points. Bob, I'll bet you can do this too. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, mm mm-hmm. You know, and of course most of it, until finally she says with a little sharp edge in her voice, you haven't heard a word I said. Well, then she's got my attention, see? 
Now I'm accused, nailed to the wall. That's true. She's pricked me. She's got my attention. Now my book's down, my newspaper's down. I'm actually looking at her. Both ears turned on. I'm listening. That's what Jesus is trying to get this woman to do, to really listen. Not just to hear the words, to really listen. Um, a guy named John Wimber years ago has died. Uh, actually, he's been gone for a while, too, come to think of it. Anyway, John Wimber made waves in the 80s with what was called the Signs and Wonders movement. He was a proponent that when God speaks or moves in evangelism, he often does so in what he called Signs and Wonders, a phrase out of Acts. Um, the Signs and Wonders spawned the vineyard movement, the vineyard denomination or association of fellowship, as I think they prefer to be called. But in one of his early books, he tells a neat story about being on an airplane and as he looks around the cabin of the plane, he sees a gentleman, and he sees, as it were, in his mind's eye, the word adulterer across this guy's forehead. And so, yeah. So he has a conversation with this gentleman in which he brings up adultery. And the guy confesses he is in an adulterous relationship. And he repents, and his life is changed from this conversation on the airplane totally unlooked for as far as Wimber was concerned, and certainly unlooked for as far as the guy was concerned. But God gave him an insight into something, a, a pressure point, as it were, in this guy's life, so that when Wimber talked to him, he could bring this up, and he would have this guy's full attention. God would have this guy's attention, as it were. Uh, sometimes, for you and I, I'm convinced that we're on the woman's end that is, we want to be on Jesus' end. We're the one giving the life-giving message. But sometimes we're on the woman's end. That is, God has something to say to us, and we're a little dull, intentionally or unintentionally. In fact, in Luke 24, we uh, went over these verses on Easter Sunday, I think. But you remember the guys, Jesus' friends in Luke 24, who are leaving Jerusalem after the crucifixion, and they're walking to Emmaus? and they're downhearted, and they're dispirited, and Jesus, unrecognized, comes up and joins them, and he's talking to them about the Messiah and the prophecies that had to be fulfilled. And they don't get it. They still don't get it. And Jesus says, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. These weren't unsaved Samaritans. These were Jesus' friends and followers, and he called them dull and slow of heart. And if they were and could be, you know what? You and I probably can be dull and slow of heart. And sometimes God will do the same thing for you and I that he did with this woman. That is, he will prick us. He will put his finger on some area of our life to get our attention so that we're not a him, so that we put our book down and look at him and listen. Okay, God, you've got my attention. This would be different for all of us. Let me ask you this before we go on. If God wanted to get your attention today, what would he say? Would he bring up to you some secret sin? Would you go, ouch, you got my attention. Or would he bring up some disappointment or pain from the past that you still kind of brood on and you'd say, oh, yep, Lord, what do you want? Or some hope, something that hasn't occurred yet, something that you hope for the future. If God wanted your attention, what would he bring up? What would he say? Just think about that. I have no idea what God would say to any of us, but 
Think about that. And if he brings it up, you know he's talking. The conversation continues. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. I hope this rings as funny to you guys as it does to me. This is like the light goes on and she, she understates the obvious, doesn't she? Oh, you're a prophet. They don't know each other, never met before, and you know my past. Okay, you're a prophet. Look at verse 20. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. What is that about? Do you sense a little diversionary tactic here? A little changing the topic? Changing the subject? Because it's getting a little sensitive. The heat's turning up a little bit. It's getting a little personal here. What does worship in Jerusalem have to do with five husbands? Or the water of life? Absolutely nothing, and that would be the point. This woman, you know, we said dull unintentionally and intentionally. She's being quite intentional here. A little uncomfortable. We'll just change the topic. Now, why does she pick this topic? She is quite shrewd, by the way, in saying this. Because if you were had a conversation between a Jew and a Samaritan, and you want to get the sparks to fly, talk about where you're supposed to worship. Remember that for the Samaritans, they accepted the Torah, the first five books. They rejected the rest of the Jewish Old Testament. And they said that the place to worship was on their mountain in their temple. Their temple, I think, at this point had had already been destroyed. But they said, we're supposed to worship on this mountain. The Jews, of course, say, no way, no how. We worship in Jerusalem at the temple. This was a political hot button. So she's throwing out what she thinks is a piece of red meat to a Jewish dog, see? She's going to get him to attack this political hot button and forget all about her past and what God wants to say to her. She's quite shrewd in bringing this up, quite shrewd. Now, Jesus, um, he takes the bait in one hand and he doesn't on the other. I mean, he goes with her question. He doesn't just say, I'm not going to respond to that. He responds. But he responds in a way to bring the issue back to her personally. And I think we need to do the same. And let me ask you a question. Our culture, Christianity, is a big issue culturally. That is Christians voting, Christians as voting block, Christian issues on moral and political issues. It's a big thing. I watched a program for 30 minutes yesterday on PBS about Christians, evangelicals, and culture. And uh, Bush is counting on the evangelical vote, and Kerry's counting on not having the evangelical vote, etc. Um, there are lots of political, cultural hot buttons today. Homosexuality, uh, marriage and homosexuals and lesbians, um, welfare and taxes, abortion issues. And let me suggest that sometimes in the conversations you and I have with others, these will be thrown out as diversionary tactics to move the conversation away from the personal issue about where is the person at with Christ. And we need to be shrewd enough, as Jesus was, to not fall for the bait. That is, to leave the conversation that needs to take place. Now, in saying this, I don't mean that these issues aren't important issues. And the Bible has lots to say on all of them. The mistake, though, is confounding or exchanging these issues for the only issue that counts in eternity, which is, what have you done with Christ? 
Where are you at with Jesus Christ? That's the only question in eternity that matters. When people stand before Christ, he's not going to ask them their voting record. He's not going to ask their position on any one of a number of political or moral issues. There's only one issue. What did you do with my son? And we serve Christ poorly if we allow these baits, these red meats, as it were, thrown out in front of us so that they divert our attention in our conversations away from the one conversation with unbelievers that matters, which is, where are you at with Christ? Okay, this is, on, this is at an evangelistic level. The other things aren't issues. One person is the issue. So Jesus responds to her, <clears throat> diversionary tactic. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you don't know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus makes us personal to her again by saying, he diffuses the question. On one hand, he acknowledges that there's a real difference of opinion. He says salvation is from the Jews. It's not from the Samaritans. And if pressed, Jerusalem and the temple are the place to worship. This was God's, God's command. So he doesn't hedge here. He, he directly answers her question. But he doesn't leave it as just her diversionary tactic. He brings it back and says, you know what? The geographical location of worship aside, there's a time coming when people will worship in spirit and truth and the geography won't matter. He says God is seeking worshipers, those who will worship him in spirit and truth. You know what? That invitation went to her. This brings it back to the personal level. He diffuses the question by saying, in the end, ultimately, it won't be Samaria or Jerusalem or the temple that's the issue. God's looking for worshipers who worship in spirit and truth, geography aside. It's an invitation, as it were, to her to worship God, to become a worshiper. So he answers the question. She asks a direct question. It's a diversion, but he accepts it at face value. He answers it in a way that makes it personal to her again, though. Salvation is from the Jews, but guess what? God's seeking worshipers, anyone to worship him in spirit and truth. Now, her diversions continue here. Look at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who's called the Christ. When that one comes, he'll declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, because the Samaritans did accept the first five books, they believed Deuteronomy 18, 15, when Moses said, God, one day will send you a prophet just like me. They understood that, that was the Messiah. This was correct. But I think what she's really saying to Jesus is, in essence, okay, Mr. Jew boy, you may know about my past, but, but your words, they're okay, but I'm waiting for the Messiah. Do you think she was really waiting for the Messiah? I don't think so. It's another distraction. I've heard what you have to say. It's nice, and yeah, you're a prophet of some kind because you know my past, but... I'm waiting for the real guy to show up, and then, then I'll listen to him. I hope this strikes you as funny as it does to me again. She's speaking to the Messiah, saying, don't worry. When the Messiah comes, then I'll listen to what he has to say. But you, you can kind of go away now. 
Jesus, though, with this invitation, he invites her at the end. I who speak to you am he. I'm the one. He says, ego, amy in Greek. I am. I am the Messiah. So you can listen to my words. I find it interesting here that the text does not say if this woman believed. Does not say. It says a couple other things. It says she leaves her water pot and she runs to town. And it says she is a martyr. She witnesses to those in town. And listen to what she says. She says, come see a man who told me everything about my life. This is not the Christ, is it? Her last testimony is a question. It's not a statement. I hope she believed. I hope when we arrive in heaven, she's there to greet us at a well or otherwise, that she believed. Now, we know that other Samaritans believed from her testimony, verse 39 says. We also know that because she went in and testified, others came out, they listened to Jesus, and they believed because of his words, verse 41. So I hope she believed too, but I don't know because the text doesn't tell us. But here, here is Jesus. Just go back through this for just a minute, just as an example for us. Jesus takes an ordinary, mundane conversation, and he uses that to go directly to issues of spiritual reality and eternity, spiritual life. And he's not put off by diversionary tactics. He answers direct questions with direct answers, but he always brings it back to the personal level. And then remember, for you and I, every day, any day, we could be faced with the same thing, that God has an appointment on his calendar that we can't see with any of the folks we interact with, in which God might be using us to offer them the water of life, a drink from the water of life. You never know. Inspections, school, telephone, work, play, friends, relatives, you never know. And I just think the important thing for us is so much... It's to be ready simply to speak and to obey. And then it's to be ready with enough wisdom to not be put off if the people say things that are meant to distract us from the one issue that really counts, which is Jesus himself. Where are you at with Jesus himself? That's the question. Well, let's pray. Lord, I hope this gal's with you in heaven. I hope she joined the other Samaritans and believed. Father, help us, like your son, to be ready at any time to hear your words and to share them with others. Father, it's um, exciting to think that in your economy, any conversation we have could be one of your divine appointments in which you want us to share something with others some invitation to the water of life, an invitation to join you. Lord, whatever else is part of our conversation, when we're talking with someone about eternal life, help us not to lose focus that in the end, you're the only thing, you're the only one that matters. If we're sharing Christ with others, help us not to be confusing about moral standards or political issues, but one thing only, as Paul said, Jesus Christ and him crucified, or Jesus Christ, the water of life. Father, help us to continue to drink and to experience the fullness that you mean us to have by your Spirit's presence within us. We pray that his work in us is unhindered. And Lord, if you have something to say to us and we've become a bit dull in the hearing, 
prick our hearts, open our minds by addressing us in one of these sensitive areas just so that we can hear you again. Father, thanks that you're the divine initiator. You're the one seeking lost sheep. You're the one watching the road for repentant sons or daughters to return. Thanks for your loving kindness to us, Lord. Thanks for the water of life. In Jesus' name, amen.